Time for another great podcast from ICRT. But first, a message from one of our outstanding partners. Don't forget, more information and fun on the ICRT app or at icrt.com.tw. ICRT, listen with the world. Now open. Texas Roadhouse is bringing Taichung residents its delicious, juicy steaks and barbecue ribs. Located on Shizhong Road, Texas Roadhouse is looking forward to serving up legendary food, legendary service, and legendary fun. 美味的手工鮮切牛排,10月5日登陸台中,德州鮮切牛排台中店,位在西屯區市政路581-6號,傳奇性的美式風味,等你來嘗鮮。We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by New Bloom's Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by ICRT's Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. Good evening, Gavin. Tonight we discuss renewed talk of moving the seat of government, calls to scrap the use of the term mainland, the latest news about next year's local elections, the future for cryptocurrency here in Taiwan, and a rather mysterious plume of smoke that, well, maybe just wasn't smoke. But we'll kick things off with Tuesday's National Day celebration, which saw a minor protest by pro-independence groups and some questions over promotional materials, but was also attended by the heads of all of the island's main political parties. KMT Chairman Udoni, People First Party Chairperson James Sung, New Power Party Chairman Huang Guozhang and Ming Guodang Chairwoman Xu Xinying were all in attendance and there were no boycotts as has been seen in previous years. And along with pomp and circumstance and a parade that featured colourful floats, majorettes, marching bands and olive drab military helicopters, President Tsai Ing-wen made her annual address, which this year focused on cross-party political unity, cross-strait ties and constitutional reform. So let's begin with a cross-strait part of the address in which Sire urged leaders from both sides to work together to create new models of cross-strait interaction and to lay a more solid basis for long-term peace and stability in their relationship. Tsai said although political differences between the two sides have led to some complications, some complications is a bit of a, pretty a mild lead anyway, and she also said that her administration has worked to maintain the basic stability of cross-strait relations. Now, China's Taiwan Affairs Office responded to that on Wednesday, saying that peace, stability and the development in cross-strait relations are only possible under Beijing's one-China principle. So, who do you think Tsai was talking to then? Because we could predict that answer, couldn't we, Brian? But who do you think Tsai was talking to? Mm. I mean, it's not too surprising that, you know, China would not exactly take well to anything Tsai says, so long as, you know, Tsai does not admit to the 1992 consensus or whatever. Um, But I think, you know, Tsai is trying to present to the international world that, you know, she's maintaining good faith with China, even though China is the one that has no interest in having relations with Taiwan. So I think that's probably what she was directing her appeals to. Yeah, what was quite interesting, I thought, about the speech was China's reaction. But she, uh, through the entire thing, yeah, she didn't didn't actually specifically mention China, though she talked about uh, cross-strait relations. Um, But what was really quite interesting is that there were two blistering attacks on China uh, on her in the Global Times uh, that, that you know uh, head, headlined Tsai's speech criticized as boastful and lacking in sincerity, and the Chinese take on Tsai's speech and they go on and talk about her delivering her uh, speech in her dulcet feminine tones and. 
uh, goes on about uh, uh, <clears throat> here her her was boastful and lacking in sincerity. But what I found most really uh, here are hollow boasts about her political achievements. And uh, the Taiwan people may not feel the same same way as she is, as they are very they're quite divided. Uh, and they go on, and this is really quite interesting, is that in both of them they talk about how uh, the central government, meaning China, is capable of deciding the boundary of its Taiwan policy, regulating the DPP administration and preventing Tsai from crossing the red line. China's anti-secession law is taking effect in Taiwan, and Taiwan's unification is a historic trend. Tsai's efforts will end in failure. Now, of course, the uh, the Global Times is, of course, uh, sort of a sounding board for nationalists in China, but they often float upcoming policy in the in in the uh, or more bombastic elements of their uh, of their policy in the publication. And I think the real question about whether China's uh, Taiwan policy changes will have to really depend on the 19th National Congress of the uh, Communist Party of China, which will take place later this month. So. You know, we'll have to see after that. Um, but uh, it is a question. I mean, you know, what steps will China take? Will China try to increase pressure on on Taiwan? Yeah, I think everything right now is in a holding pattern, really. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's why her speech was so muted? I think so. I mean, I think that you know she kind of recommitted to a lot of the things she had said before in the past. You know, reforming the military, strengthening the military, but not for the purpose of war. And also, you know, focusing on the new southbound policy in order to you know wean Taiwan off of over defense on China. I mean, that that did not change. But you know, again, just presenting that you're in good faith in conducting relations towards China. And, you know, she even did cite, you know, the historic nature of uh, cross-strait relations, you know, that this had been gone on for decades, for three decades. Oh, and she did mention the 30th year. That's right, the of 30th course, anniversary. T- t- it was yesterday, Thursday, I believe, mm-hmm. the 30th anniversary, when they allowed ROC passport holders to travel to China to meet their families. Mm-hmm. Um, she did play that up, which is which is interesting. Um, but again, I think that, you know, it's trying to mainly come off as the one who is not the aggressor, unlike China. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's absolutely correct. I think what was really quite interesting about the speech um, is two things. I, I, is that the first, it's it was actually really quite. Uh, it was a strikingly nationalistic center right speech for the most part, um, and there was a, a vast chunks of it could easily have been given by a, a KMT politician. On the other hand. When you look at it, there was also, but there was, it's where it differed from if it was a KMT president that I found really quite interesting is, in, first of all, in the run-up to it, of course, the ROC flag was downplayed down here in Taichung. Basically, uh, the, you know, the uh, KMT was, it was pretty furious at the, what they considered the lack of ROC flags. Obviously, the, uh, you know, the promotions of, uh, in Taipei lacked a lot of uh, ROC symbology and had, a variety of colors rather than the ones you normally expect from a ROC celebration. Um, but during the most of the speech itself, the the parts that differed was she started off. She kicked off the speech by by talking about how uh, she talked about securing Taiwan's democratic credentials and thanked her previously democratically elected presidents. So essentially, for her, history started with Li Donghui, and she talked about uh, Chen Shui-bian and Ma Ying-jeou. But the rest of it was pretty much, uh, you know, for, then she went into a whole long period where it could easily have been a KMT speech. Industrial and economic policy and tax code and pension reform and crackdown on drugs and uh, talking about how the people in, you know, the people in uh, uniform are safeguarding uh, Taiwan and this kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. Right, of course, there was a couple of... There was one major boo-boo, of course, in the promotional material when, of course, the actual sign said, a better Taiwan, but it was pre- it was looked like it, a beer Taiwan, of course, because <laughs> they used the double 10 logo for that one. Did you see that, Brian? I did see that. I think that, you know, just as usual, a lot of uh, Taiwan's international outreach could do with a better English. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Donovan's right. I think a lot of it was really like a, check- uh, a checklist of, of what a lot of what Tsai said uh, during elections, you know, during 2016 elections. And sometimes when the same platform comes from a KMT politician or a DP politician is a little different in in resonance. But I think the interesting thing is that, you know, internationally, I think more people actually pay attention more to William Lai taking the premiere and his past comments on independence even more so than this speech, which, you know, doesn't indicate fundamental change. That's kind of one of the odd things about this. Ryan, of course, Tsai also talked of constitutional reform in her speech, and the president invited political party leaders to exchange views on the issue. Now, she invited them to join discussions on plans to amend the constitution to lower the voting age to 18, add human rights clauses, and change how seats in the legislative UN are appointed. Now, the KMT initially came out and dismissed mention of such talks as rhetoric, with party caucus governor Lin Fu telling reporters that the president should detail how she plans to resolve the cross-strait deadlock, safeguard Taiwan's democracy and grow its economy instead of uttering slogans. However, later in the same day, KMT chairman Udani came out and he said he wouldn't turn down such a meeting, but in his words, if the topics and format are appropriate. Now, both the, fee- the People First Party, rather, and the New Power Party both said they were open to the idea of a meeting on the political party leaders. So do you see this happening, Brian? I mean, it's hard to know what constitutional reform will mean. I mean, it's one of these, you know, huge reform things that's been called for for a while, you know, along with judicial reform and, you know, reform of the pension system or whatever. It's one of these big, you know, historical issues that is not resolved. But uh, will they meet to talk about it? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. That's the thing that's interesting, <laughs> just, you know, that... Uh, that they aren't turning it down this time. Because, you know, sometimes the KMT or the Pan Blue camp will just accuse the DPP of, you know, wanting to use this as a way to push for a Taiwanese independence or what have you, um, you know, to get away from the ROC constitution. So the fact that, you know, Tsai in her speech gesture towards, you know, political unity, that all the party leaders were present, and that, you know, she also said that she'd be willing to, you know, she invited all these people and they were kind of willing to take it up. That's interesting, I mean. And they all went, of course. Yeah, Because last right. year, of course, there was one missing. That's right. Rather conspicuous one mm. missing, the head of mm. the KMT at the time. That's right. And so, you know, that maybe just indicate that Udani doesn't want to stick to such a hard line right now. Um, I mean, Tsai did also do, for example, you know, she invited James Song to be the representative of APEC again. So she's still continuing outreach to the pan-blue camp. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm very, very curious to see whether or not they come together and meet and actually work on something, because, I, I mean, they've done it before. Um, you know, for example, when they totally reformed how the legislature was elected, you know, going back to uh, uh, the mid-2000s. So, I mean, there's th- there's definitely a lot of potential for them to meet, but it, it, because now the dynamics are so different it's really up in the air. It's really hard to hard to say. The KMT has a lot to gain and a lot to lose by joining in such a, a such a meeting. But if she keeps it to things like the which the KMT's already previously come out and said they're they're in favor of the uh, the eighteen year you know dropping the, uh, the the age to eighteen and some of these other things. But we don't know how sincere they are on it. And of course, there's always sort of a a, a tension between wanting to play ball on the one hand, which could uh, which could make make the party look good. On the other hand, there's a lot of people in the base who just simply never want you to, to play ball with the opposition. So it's going to be. I'm very curious to see how the KMT on this responds. The PFP is kind of marginal, and the NPP probably will. 
Right, but will they agree on a menu? It's hard to say. Yes. Anyway, let's move on from that and comments by Premier William Lai last Friday during a legislative question and answer session about relocating the country's capital to Taichung have been picked up on this week. And a DPP lawmaker requested that the Cabinet form a committee to consider moving the Republic of China capital to the central city. Now, the lawmaker, Huang Guoshu, who just happens to have a constituency in Taichung, went as far to say that the committee should be tasked with not only assessing the potential impact, but also of setting a timetable for such a move. Donovan, the capital. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, this is something that uh, since Taiwan's been elected, this has been coming up repeatedly. Now, what's different is is that uh, as soon as Taiwan was elected, there was a lot of talk about moving the legislative UN to Taichung. And the uh, and there was a fair bit of movement. Uh, Su Jiaquan kind of came out in favor of it. Now he was a, at one time he was a candidate for mayor here in Taichung. Um, and there's a lot of talk, of course, historically within the the DPP of of regional justice as part of the broader transitional justice thing, uh, where Taipei's obviously been significantly favored historically, financially, and administratively. Uh, being, and also, it's you know, it's the both the uh, the governmental capital and the economic capital. So, uh, and of course, any move south would of course benefit the DPP, where their main strongholds are. Now, the argument in favor of moving the legislative yuan to Taichung, there's a lot of the case has been made that uh, Taichung, of course, being it's very central. Um, there's a lot more space here. There's better traffic. Uh, but of course, Taipei is a basin which is seismically active, surrounded by nuclear power plants. Um, and if there was a decapitation strike by China, it would be you know it, it would be one blow and lock, knock it all out. Whereas if you were to move uh, you know the legislative branch to Taichung, you'd, you'd spread it out a little bit more, and of course there would be less risk of a disaster wiping out much of the government. Now. What, the city government here has actually put a lot of work into this already. They've come up with three proposed sites and uh, already you know, proposed these to the central government, and then it kind of, the issue petered out. Now, when William Leichingdo came in to, um, uh, to become the premier, the issue's been revived for two reasons. One is that in the past, he's actually repeatedly called for a redistribution of the central government. And what he's called for in the past was that Taipei would be the economic capital, Taichung would be the administrative capital, and as, of course, the mayor of Tainan, he suggested the political capital would be Tainan. Now, of course, there's some historical precedent for that in, ta- in Taiwan, but now, the, so that would mean, not necessarily, that would actually mean moving the executive yuan to uh, Taichung is, is, is part of his suggestion, or at least what a lot of people think that's, that's what he means. Now, so if the administrative capital were to be moved to Taichung, that would mean that, of course, the capital had been moved from Nanjing of the, of the Republic of China to Taipei provisionally, and then, of course, provisionally to Taichung, which would be quite a move. Now, this would be, uh, this is a quite a bit different than the legislative uh, UN move, but he's been kind of prevaricating on this. Uh, he also thought, brought up the idea of possibly moving uh, the capital to Zhongxing New Village in Nanto, uh, which, of course, is very central to the to the island. It's the mainland of Taiwan. <laughs> However, that, that's got a rather bad rap, though, hasn't it, with certain elements in Taiwan? 
Oh yeah, the well, there's <laughs> there's a long history there. Obviously, there's a lot of political ties with local families, and of course, it's a KMT stronghold, and uh, it's in the middle middle of the no, middle of nowhere, and so on and so forth. But uh, it was something that you know. But the thing is that he actually kind of came out and suggested he was for all these plans or something along these lines. Uh, not that just of last week, but then he's kind of backtracked and said. It's something we still need to discuss. He's not ruling it out, but he's kind of backtracked, and it's still, he said it's still early, we still need to discuss it, and so he's kind of disappeared into a cloud of kind of maybe in the future. And Brian, do you see the capital moving? It's hard to say, because, you know, I think uh, Taiwan, you know, as a small country, fits the pattern in which, you know, the capital is the political and the economic and the cultural center, and it just sucks up resources from the rest of the country, which is, you know, something you've seen in a lot of places, and that lives, leads to, you know, a political split between the central city and, you know, everything else in the country. And, you know, that's that's Taiwan's development pattern. Um, but will that change? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I don't know. I think that... Uh, if there were actually was a serious push for that, that would have uh, the potential to really change Taiwanese politics and you know how a lot of you know a lot of these daily you know affairs are conducted. And so you know I don't I don't know if the idea will gain traction. Where were the places in Taichung, Donovan, that they actually picked for this? Uh, there was uh, one down in um, near Changgongning, the military base uh, in Wu. Um, another one right near the high-speed rail station, uh, and then there was a third one, um, and I, I, I forget actually where the third one was. Right. But I the mean, high-speed rail, basically, two of them were right near the high-speed rail station. And there's, of course, there's lot, plenty of empty land there. Yeah, there's, there's a fair bit of land there, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's also talk even before of, of moving the legislative friend to where the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial is now. I mean, sometimes these, these ideas are floated. Um, we'll see if that gains traction, though. Most yeah. of them blow away in the window yeah. when they're floated. They don't float too long. <laughs> so if you had to pick a location, Donovan, you're in charge. Where would you say it should be moved to in Taichung? Uh, Brighton, actually, near the high-speed rail station would actually be good because it's obviously easy to reach for the legislators, and it's actually relatively easy to get to the main, uh, the, the Taiwan, the TRA station downtown is only a few stops away from there and has really good uh, uh, freeway access. Plus, it wouldn't impact uh, downtown's traffic too much. Roman, do you think they could have two? They could have one in Taipei, a seasonal move, maybe. <laughs> the, the, the sort of the summer muggy months it'll be in the, nor- in, the, in the center, and the colder months it'll move down south. I, I think that doesn't make any sense, because that would replicate way too many employees, <laughs> and they would, they would have to commute. They have all their staffers. So having them to commute and move and maintain two apartments, I think that's unfeasible. But keep in mind, there's five branches of government. And so, you know, there's a lot of leeway there to move one branch or another branch. And it only really takes an hour, hour and a half to get up to Taipei to meet with people from the executive branch if they were to move the legislative branch here. Or if Lai Ching does plan to move the administrative branch here, vice versa. Mm-hmm. Right. Anyway, we'll stay with another rather sticky political issue this week, and that being calls for the government to stop using the term mainland when referring to China in all official documentation. Now, supporters of the proposal say the use of the term mainland denotes one country, two areas. Obviously, certain politicians don't use the term mainland, but others do, Brian. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, William Lai is most famous for always saying China and not saying mainland China or, you know... 
I mean, you know, China, referring to China as just China, that's usually considered the most pro-independence way of referring to China, because, you know, then you do assert that it's not the mainland that you have, you know, Taiwan doesn't have a connection to it, and so forth. But I think, you know, the KMT would seize on that as, you know, another attempt at cultural Taiwanese independence or desinization. Yeah, I mean, that, that also raises tricky issues for the ROC framework, so... That's that's it's a question because you know William Lai does have this habit, but recently he has indicated that he does not intend to really break from the ROC framework. Although this comment was misread by you know a lot of international media. Uh, yeah, if I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. Of course, if you look at it say, geographically, obviously uh, Taiwan is part of the island chain that runs from Japan down through the Philippines. So, in in a geographical sense, you know, uh, China's not really the mainland. Obviously, politically, it's a major statement. Right. One of the arguments, of course, was other countries don't refer it to as the mainland. They call it China. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the world refers to China as China. China is China. Uh, I don't think anybody's debating that. Um, and you can, you could, I suppose, make the, make the case that, you know, if you're in Taiwan and you refer to China as China, that doesn't necessarily mean that Taiwan is or isn't part of it. It leaves a kind of am, ambiguous, it, sort it of does. like U.S. It, policy, uh, you know, leaves Taiwan's status, whether it's sort of in or out of China, is ambiguous. I think it's also, we can also take it as one of these kind of political correctness issues. Because, you know, usually sometimes you can kind of guess someone's political views if they only refer to uh, China as China and not, you know, like Zhongguo Dalu, like mainland China. So, you know, people that, when you when you do see that, that maybe does indicate more pro-independence views. But again, you know, as with many of these terminology issues, it's very hard to pin down. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we'll begin the second half of the show with news about next year's local elections. And we'll begin this with former Taipei County Commissioner Zhou Shi Wei making an early start to his hopes of a political comeback and running as the KMT's nominee for new Taipei city mayor. Zhou, of course, served as commissioner of the then Taipei County for one term from 2005. Now, a couple of other names have already been linked to the candidacy in Taipei City, those being current new Taipei city Deputy Mayor Ho Yo E, who has been seen as the top KMT candidate previously, and former KMT chairwoman Hong Shou Ju. And there's been reports that she's been visiting Taipei, New Taipei City rather, recently as she mulls a possible run here. Do Brian, do you see Zhou Shi Wei making a comeback, or do you think the KMT will put somebody else in? Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I think the KMT is just really desperate to hang on to New Taipei City. Um, before, you know, there's talk of Joe possibly becoming the Secretary General of, of the KMT. And, you know, I think this is also, as as is probably not surprising, it's another opportunity for inter- internal factionalism to arise. Because you know, the KMT is desperate to retain New Taipei City as the territory, the political territory it does have and, you know, has historically had a grip over it. But who takes it? You know, that, that will be a sign of who is in control of the party, who is a rising force in the party. And, you know, it, it does point to the future of, you know, a party that is currently in a political crisis. And then, of course, there's been talk before William Lai became premier. There was talk of him running for the DPP candidacy in New Taipei. Mm-hmm. It feels like, you know, they say that about everybody that's a, a rising political star, that they might go for New Taipei City. They say that about William Lai. They said that about Huang Guochang. Um, so, you know, you, this is floated for both the pan-blue and the pan-green camp. And, you know, because New Taipei City is huge, the pan-green camp also does want to convert it to green territory. Donovan, I know you're in Taichung, but what about Zhou Xiwei as new Taipei city mayor? Well, the last time I saw Zhou Xiwei, he was on a horse and it nearly threw him uh, and uh, really rattled him. 
Uh, I, obviously, I don't uh, believe in portents, but uh, that that was a very that, that was the last time I saw him. Um, now, he. What's interesting about this is, you know is that I think what Brian says is absolutely correct. I mean, New Taipei City is the biggest city on the, uh, in the country, and, the, and, and it's really the only major administrative region that the KMT has left right now. So they, they are, as, as Brian said, desperate to hang on to it. But what's the the thing is that for them that's tricky is that obviously they've got multiple candidates who want it. None of them are particularly popular nationally. There's some that, that are popular locally. But Zhou Xiwei wasn't a very popular uh, Taipei County uh, magistrate. So he might not be a great candidate, but he is reportedly quite close to uh, Wu Duanyi. Now, on the other hand, and, and again, as Brian mentioned, you know, William Lai has been mooted as a potential candidate, and I think that's actually still quite possible. Um, my immediate reaction when I heard that William Lai Chingdo took the, the, the position as premier is, are you kidding me? You're nuts. Because clearly the guy is a rising star in the party, and a lot of people think that he's the natural successor for uh, to run after... Um, uh, after Tsai Ing-wen leaves office in 2024, and of course a lot of people speculated that he might challenge her in 2020. The premier job is is kind of a poison chalice. Generally speaking, you know, uh, you know, whenever anything goes wrong with the government, the person who takes the hit is the premier, who is then essentially sacked or resigns or whatever, and there's a few of them that go through to take the hits for the president during the president's term. So, uh, I have a theory, uh, I think this is just a theory, that he might still run because once he's, now he's got the premiere, that gives him some national recognition. He'd, run, he'd be in the position for about eight months. Then there'll be the obligatory cry for, oh, uh, you know, William Lai, of course he's nicknamed, you know, the god, um, will, you know, you need to save us in New Taipei and reclaim it for the DPP. And, of course, keep in mind that, you know, uh, Eric uh, Juliduan, when he, uh, he did win last time, but barely. He won it by a narrow margin. So it's kind of up, it's a territory that's up for grabs. And if the DPP were to win it, it would be a huge win for the DPP side and a devastating blow for the KMT. So I think the DPP really does want to get it. So if uh, William Lai has about six, eight months experience in the central government, gives him a lot more name recognition in New Taipei, he was actually born in what is now New Taipei. So he would actually make a very good candidate. And if he's only been in the central government as premier for something like eight months, and he reluctantly resigns because everyone's calling for him to run for the mayor of New Taipei, without, because he's only been in the central government for a limited amount of time, there's a reasonably good chance that he can get through the premier experience without taking too much political damage, whereas most people who are in that position for you know, more than a year pretty much end up with a lot of damage. I think, I think the interesting thing is that you know uh, there's a demand for a rising star to take New Taipei City from the DPP, but I th- also think that's true of the, the KMT. I mean, going with Joe, Joe is actually a kind of a conservative choice because he was the former magistrate. Having a new, fresh face to take New Taipei City could you know bolster the KMT's fortune slightly, but that doesn't actually seem to li- likely to happen. No, I mean, obviously they got, they got the deputy mayor, haven't they? Ho Yo E. Mm-hmm. 
But I, you know, he's not really known outside New Taipei, really, is he? Mm. So, and Hong Shouju, of course, has been possibly. Kind of, <laughs> I don't see that happening myself. I think New Taipei City is far too big a prize for the KMT. Anyway, what's happening in Taichung these days with the election? It being a year away, we've got to be on the ball here, Donovan. What's happening? Well, okay. The 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 right now, if you look at if you look at it on paper. Uh, it looks like uh, Lin Jialong pretty much has it locked up. Now, they, you know, his uh, approval ratings, there's two ways of looking at it. One is that his approval ratings are you know, over 50% or around 50%. Um, and there have been a couple of polls that match him up against three or four, uh, between three and five different candidates in the two polls that I've looked at. Now, the most likely candidates in Taichung, the top three, are... Um, Lu Xiuyan, who's the most popular by a narrow margin of the three KMT candidates. Uh, there's Johnny uh, Jiang Jing, uh, Jiang Qi, uh, Johnny Chang, uh, Jiang Qi Chang, and uh, then there's uh, Yan Quanhong, who's the son of Yan Qingbiao, and there's some other minor ones, but they don't even really register. Uh, of the three three KMT candidates, only Lu Xiuyan and uh, Johnny Chang really have much of a chance. Both of them got uh, in the polling about a 20, low 20s, like 22, 23% support versus uh, 40, you know, 46, 47% for uh, Lin Jialong. And then, uh, and then, of course, Yen came in at about 10, 15%. So he looks like really not a very likely candidate. So basically the two are Lu Xiuyan or Johnny Chang. So those are the two likely KMT candidates. Now, again, if you look at those polling numbers, you pretty much would assume that uh, Lin Jialong has it locked up. However, I think that Lin's, Lin has, is a little bit weaker than he looks on paper. The, keep in mind that we, you know, in the Commonwealth poll, uh, comparing him to other local leaders, he comes in at uh, about 16th uh, out of 21 administrative regions. So he's not really looking that strong compared to other local leaders. On top of that, uh, there's been a lot of defections within his local government, and there's some discontent with some of his policies. Um, and the campaign hasn't started, so the other two candidates from the KMT side that are likely don't yet quite have the the recognition that uh, Lin Jialong yet has, and they haven't really started launching attacks uh, on Lin Jialong, nor have they been really touting their own policies. So there's not really an awareness yet of an opposition. So it, it, it's, it's still in Jialong's to lose at this point. But I think that once a campaign starts, if they pick one of those two candidates, the race will, will tighten uh, significantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, yeah, I think that's one of the challenges that when you're mayor for a while, you know, then, then uh, you know, your, your record eventually does maybe come back to haunt you. Um, but better to be a mayor than for eight years than a mayor for four years. That's right. Otherwise, of course, you, you go into oblivion like Zhou Xiwei, mm. who left us the Taipei port, though, of course. Mm. He did leave us the Taipei port. Yeah, that's not bad. So maybe Lin, <laughs> Lin Jialong in Taichung will leave us the MRT for you, Donovan. Well, no, actually, the MRT was planned, <laughs> and big, it was uh, the building began under uh, Jason Hu. Well, you know, it goes take a, uh, credit for someone else's accomplishments. <laughs> Um, I mean, basically, I mean, Lin Jialong's uh, strengths are it, it is, have actually been he's been quite strong on a lot of very uh, on very sort of local issues like paving the roads, and he's done some excellent work on restoring and cleaning up waterways and also water quality. Uh, he's come out 
strongly with very little success because the central government has been blocking him um, on dealing with air pollution and the uh, Taichung power plant. Mm. Um, but in terms of big, uh, in terms of big vision kinds of things, almost everything that he's working on right now are either working with the central government, uh, you know, the Industry 4.0 stuff, the smart city, uh, and train and that kind of thing. Uh, or and everything else is pretty much our holdovers from uh, the Jason Hu era, uh, the the big floral expo, that kind of thing. Those are all those are all secured during his predecessor's term. Right, we shall move on and we'll look at some financial news now, but not of the ordinary kind. As I spoke with David Green of the News Lens about cryptocurrency and plans by the Financial Supervisory Commission to come up with a framework for its legal use here in Taiwan. Good evening, David. Good evening, Gavin. Right, so Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman Wellington Gu last week said that the government will make moves to actually work on the development of cryptocurrency here in Taiwan. Now, of course, being a layman like I am, I translated this as meaning like simply Bitcoin, but apparently cryptocurrency is slightly more than simply Bitcoin. Yep, it's Bitcoin, uh, Ethereum, uh, other mainstream uh, cryptocurrencies and alternative coins. Uh, and in this case, also initial coin offerings. But I think more importantly, it's a, it's a pledge to back the development of the underlying technology, uh, which is distributed ledger and blockchain. Right, because previously the Taiwan government opposed such currencies on the ground that they were hard to, like, govern, rule, look after, basically. They did come out with a, a knee-jerk statement, yes, uh, saying initially that they might ban them. Um, but this was quickly uh, rescinded. Um, that was the fear that in the wake of China's moves to ban exchanges and um, ITOs, initial coin offerings, and Korea's decision recently to also ban ICOs and to review uh, the functioning of their exchanges, that Taiwan might follow suit um, and issue some kind of blanket ban. Right, but how does this affect the layman? Obviously, the government are going to talk about cryptocurrencies, online currencies, etc. But how does this actually affect Joe Public? Well, at the moment, there are numerous uh, companies and entities in Taiwan working on this technology. Um, the one that I can pick out and say is already uh, benefiting the public is a company called Outing, which has launched a uh, blockchain-based food safety. Um, it's, a net, it's a network that essentially enforces food, food safety by the use of the blockchain. So the public's good there, and the benefit to the consumer is that they could scan a QR code on a piece of pork, in this case, and uh, check the traceability details of the pork and know that the food that they're eating is safe. Right. Of course, recently, of course, the KMT's Jason Shu has been trying to kickstart the government into accepting the cryptocurrencies. Yes, Jason is a, a big advocate uh, for cryptocurrency and fintech in general, um, which is a good thing, I think. Um, obviously, the regulator has to... Uh, balance uh, this kind of advocacy against um, potential risks to, to the public or the retail investor in some of the schemes, ICO schemes, which uh, have been uh, labelled or are actually scammy. Um, so that's, that's why the regulator perhaps has been cautious. Um, but this is, this is uh, keeping the door open, really, uh, for people to continue doing the development that they've already been doing uh, without fear that the government is going to crack down uh, and start banning things. 
Right, obviously, some countries, I believe, have opened up ATM-type machines for Bitcoin. Do you see Taiwan going that far? Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, you can, uh, I think, redeem um, Bitcoin at some of the convenience stores. Um, it escapes me which at the moment, possibly 7-Eleven. Um, but most cryptocurrencies at the moment are not really transactional in that sense uh, yet. Um, and they are more for funding um, various different initiatives, in some ways a replacement for venture capital funding, um, which is why some of these initial coin offerings can be quite uh, dangerous because you, no, you might not be sure uh, who the people behind the company who are asking for your investment uh, in either fiat currency or um, cryptocurrencies might be. Right. So what first moves do you see the Financial Supervisory Commission taking regarding cryptocurrency final legalization here in Taiwan? I would hope that uh, in December you will see the FinTech Experimentation Act being passed. And that is a broader uh, piece of legislation that is necessary for Taiwan to implement a experimental sandbox like they have in Singapore and have had in other countries, including the UK, for some time, which basically allows uh, banks and other companies to experiment around FinTech without, again, fear of, of crossing uh, regulatory boundaries. This was a, a mistake, I think, in some ways. They, the regulator could have kept this a regulatory issue and said, yes, you have the freedom to go and experiment, but instead they made it a legislative issue, uh, which has held up the progress of this bill. And, and again, there are companies who want to experiment with third-party payments and e-wallets who are unable to do so in Taiwan because that is still the preserve of banks, unlike in, say, China, where we've had Alipay for a number of years uh, and other third-party payment providers, you can step into this space and create a lot more dynamism. Right, so you see, sort of basically you're thinking that maybe from next year, Taiwan will enter the cryptocurrency market. You will we'll have to wait and see. There are a lot of uh, checks and balances in Taiwan uh, which make development of this space quite difficult. But in terms of pure cryptocurrencies, um, you know, who would want to have an ICO in Taiwan is an, is an open question. Perhaps uh, there, is, there are some companies who would want to do that. At the moment, there are ICOs being run out of Taiwan, which are actually headquartered in places like the Cayman Islands. Um, so as to what happens next, I think that's really uh, kind of individual, down to individual actors. The, the regulators should be seen as offering a guiding hand, which is, what it's done here by keeping the door open. So it's really up to the space in Taiwan to take, to take the next move. That was me in conversation with the news lenses, David Green. And before we go, the Ministry of Transport this week was forced to reprimand the Central Weather Bureau after it confused clouds with smoke, leading some residents of Taichung to believe that the poor Ho Li district was ablaze. And Donovan is going to explain the sorry and slightly embarrassing tale because it happened in his neck of the woods. Donovan. Yeah, actually just the evening before we went on air about uh, Central Taiwan on Wednesday, uh, a series of alarming photos were released showing what appeared to be a major plume of smoke and the shape of it, the way that it, you know, it appeared in the satellite photos. It really looked like there was a major, uh, th- there was a major fire somewhere uh, in, 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 the, in the, I believe it's the Holy District here in Taichung. Um, and it was in that they looked very dramatic and, they, you know, it looked almost indisputable that they was coming from, from Taichung. But weirdly, no one had any clue where it was coming from. Uh, 
And obviously, if you were on the ground, one would think you might notice it. But then again, plumes of smoke uh, appearing you know, in Taichung are not that unusual. But from this was visible from space, and so there was a lot of panic about it and a lot of discussion. Everyone was very, very confused. It turns out they were just clouds. They were Cyrus clouds, apparently. Yes, that's right, yeah. And the, apparently the Taichung Environmental Protection Bureau sent out personnel to find the source of the smoke, but of course they couldn't find it, could they? Because <laughs> they didn't exist, they were actually clouds. Yeah, well, it was a great use of resources, that. Brian. And I'm glad the Central Weather Bureau can distinguish between smoke and clouds. That is good, yeah. Oh, I mean, that, that is a little worrisome about, you know, the ability to respond to, uh, you know, what if there actually was a fire? You know, if, if it's so difficult to distinguish that from just a the cloud, then that, that is a little, a little worrisome. Um, I actually saw this news when it came out that there was a, a mystery plume of smoke, and the first thing that came to my mind was that power station in your neck of the woods was belching smoke again. Yeah, but it was coming from what looked to be a different district. It was coming from uh, kind of far away from there. And the other thing is it was white, so it probably wouldn't have been a, f- a fire. Um, you know, if, if, if you look at it, it was, you know, it was obviously white being a serious cloud. But the um, – so it looked kind of like it would have been a major steam issue or something like that, uh, which, again, may or may not have been too, so visible from the ground. So it, it was semi-believable that it was it was a, it was smoke or some kind of steam or some kind of major release right apparently um, the, the we- it, it didn't look like it was coming from the power plant and apparently the weather bureau has said they they will be more careful when they put photographs online in the future <laughs> yeah well that's not necessarily helpful uh i think obviously having more information is better than less i think that what's more important is being able to label correctly what they put up online Right, and Holy didn't burn down, which is quite good, especially for the horses. The Holy Holy Horse Place there, of course, <laughs> yeah. and also Holy is, of course, the centre of Taiwan's saxophone markets. I believe. It is. That's <laughs> there you go. What happened to the saxophones if there was a fire? They'd be blowing smoke. <laughs> Ba-bum. Anyway, that's where we'll leave Taiwan this week. This week, with that sorry excuse of a joke, and I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good evening. And on the telephone from Taijong by Donovan Smith. And good evening, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps, where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at eight thirty for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.